boils and ghouls. Turn out the lights. And keep the popcorn coming. Because it's time for another episode of Fright Fights Podcast. Fright Fights Podcast. Get ready for your gore gang. Tyler Cavett, Chris Lax, and Mike McKinney tackling horror news, reviews, and fight for their survival. Coming to you from the Fright Fights Fear Lodge. Get ready to sink your fangs into a battle that will make your blood run cold. This is Fright Fights. Is Fright Fights. What you are witnessing are the murders of five families captured on film. To this day, none of the cases have been solved. The only thing that connects them is the appearance of this figure. Sinister Rated R in theaters October 12th. What's up, guys? Welcome back to an episode of Fright Fights. This one's a pretty special one because the science of scare study which is being put out every single year recently was published and the scariest film of all time was recently dethroned by something that we have already reviewed once. And um, Chris hates this movie. So it's kind of funny, but it's um host was now the scariest film of all time. But before that, the science of scare, you know, produced this list in multiple years, every single year, the winner was none only than Scott Derrickson's 2012 horror film Sinister. So tonight, yeah, which which I didn't really care for either, which is kind of odd that two movies have been listed as the scariest movies of all time, and I didn't really care for either of them. Yeah, well, I mean, there's that's what's interesting about this list because I don't think me or you either one have has watched Sinister in quite a while. This is gonna be like really fun to watch it again, but um, a lot of things on this list so. I'll just go through the list real quick. Um, number one currently listed is the host. We did not like that one. I liked it okay. Um, Sinister, which I mean, we'll give our review at the end of this. Um, and then it's Insidious, The Conjuring, Hereditary, Paranormal Activity, which I don't understand at all. It follows The Conjuring Two, which okay, whatever. The Babadook, The Descent, which is actually pretty fucking scary. And then the visit, uh, which I'm kind of like up in the air. I'm like, hello, why? No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, I, I would say the only one on that list that I would have any remote for saying that I agreed with it would be, um, I mean, It Follows is a good movie, but it's not scary. Um, but I would probably say, I mean, definitely not Paranormal Activity. Um, um, so the highest heart rate jump for Sinister is 131. But for we we're talking about paranormal activity, it was 127, which is still like really high. And I don't understand why people were getting so scared. Did you say the conjuring was on there too? Yeah, that was 129. That was yeah. several beats behind. Uh, but yeah, the descent, like you were saying, was it's probably the one that I would agree with. Like, I don't think it was too much of a scary movie, but as far as fears. 
you know, it's got that claustrophobic feel to it. It's definitely a, a, a fear felt, fear felt film that I don't, I don't get that from any of the other movies. The Conjuring was good. It had a couple of jump scares in it. Uh, but as far as being scary, I don't, I don't agree with any of these, especially like the visit was, that's the, uh, that's the end that Shyamalan, right? Yeah. Me and you actually watched that one night and we were yeah. like, we were like, we were literally like predicting what was going to happen, like almost the end of the movie. And we were all like just completely right. It was so predictable, unscary. And you know what's oh, that's, really funny? That's the one with the rapping kid, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> M. Night Shyamalan and Eli Roth have both, ha- both had their fair share of movies that's had rapping kids at the end. Always. Yeah, and I that's the one that I, I uh, like, 10 minutes into the movie, like, I, I looked over at you and I, I was like, here's how the movie's going to end. And it, it played out exactly how I said it was going to. Yes, yes, yes. And you know what's weird? Exorcist 3 wasn't on there. And it's had, like, it has like, a, a huge jump scare um, that's very well known. We have multiple films that's not on there that I would, you know, think that would make the list. But um, yeah, so I guess what we're going to do is we're going to watch through it and we're going to see how we react um, now that it's been, what, 10 years since it's been out in theaters. Um, it should be yeah. really, really fun. So we're, we're going to give it a watch and we're going to see what makes it worthy of being called this one of the scariest movies ever made. What year was this one uh, listed as the scariest movie? Um, so this was listed from the very beginning. I think they started doing this in 2017 or 18. And it was listed in 2018, 19, 20, 21. And then it was dethroned finally at the end of 2022. So this has actually been listed for multiple years ever since they started doing this um, scientific study. I guess you would say it is uh, the scariest movie. So consistently every single year the study was done. You know, it it ranked right at the top. People were the most scared. It had the highest heart rate rating. People reacted the worst to it. So um, I guess they're just saying it's ultimately the scariest film of all time, even though, you know, it's now been dethroned. It still kind of holds that title where it's been such a long-term, consistent film. So it's interesting. And um, Scott Derrickson, which we love, he directed this. And it was written by um, C. Robert Cargill, which is actually, um, he's wrote some, he's wrote several things before. And I can't remember exactly what they were, but I know he he's a pretty good writer as well. Um, starring Ethan Hawke. And sadly, my least favorite part of the film is James Rasson. And we'll, we'll point this out too, because I absolutely hate that guy in this. I really do. Yeah, so if you're uh, listening to this and you don't know what Sinister is, um, it's about a guy named Ellison Oswald, who is a crime novelist, who uh, he moves into a home with his family, um, and the home has uh, a, like a horrible past. Uh, when he uncovers a box of mysterious home movies found in the attic, it seems to point him uh, to a horrible, horrible time, uh, and it just unleashes a whole entire thing of ghosts and, and, and demons and everything related to, to the house, so... Let's uh let's give this a watch and see why we think this is considered scary. Yes, now this is also streaming on HBO Max if you wanted to follow along with us. That's the one I'm using. Um it's also on Amazon Same. Prime Video. And then of course, if you have the Blu-ray, it's on there as well. Um Sorry, I'm like eating raisinets at the same time. I'm ready for this. I'm excited. So right now my film has already went through the opening credits i'm currently at the 48 second mark this is just after the bloom house opening 
Do you have yours there, Chris? I'll get there. Hang on. You're good. So 48 seconds is where we're starting. All right, guys. So if you're watching along with us for the first Sinister film, uh, we are at the 48-second marker uh, past the Bloomhouse intro and logo, and we're where the film is officially going to start. So if you guys are ready to follow along, Tyler, if you're ready, let's go ahead and hit play. Whenever we count down from three, if three, two, one, we'll, we'll say play, and we'll all watch along with it. So if you guys are ready, three, two, one, play. Hey, right off, we so have that projector going on, and we're on a home movie right now, and there are an entire family of people hanging. That's the way to start it off. <laughs> yeah, I will give this credit. Is they did a really good job with the the look of the retroness of it, because a lot of movies with this kind of retro, you can tell that it's very modern with just like a, a filter over it. And I feel like this one, they did really well with having that retro style, and it actually feels a lot older. Um, yeah, it does. And I really love like films about filmmaking and using film and cutting film and stuff because it's such a novelty now. And I know later on in the film, you do see, you know, the main character. I forgot his, his, the guy's name, but it's played by um Ethan Hawke. And he actually cuts together the film, which I really, really love. And it does look like, you know, legitimate like home movie. Yeah. And I, I, me and you worked at a theater uh, when this movie came out. And I remember we got a message. Uh, I don't know if you remember this or not. We got a message from the uh, film company that released this. And there was a message saying that how the film would look for the opening scene that with the, uh, the you know, how it looked kind of off, like there's like a, the negative or something like that is there. Yeah. Um, so that people were putting the film to get like the film reels and stuff together. Uh, or if you were, you know, previewing the movie, you wouldn't get mistaken thinking there was something wrong with the projector and that, it was just off balance or something. <clears throat> yeah. And I, I think a lot of people, I don't know about your theater. Cause whenever I watched it, I still remember this day, how people reacted to that opening scene where you just see the, the family hanging. Cause honestly, you don't really see a lot of, you know, killings with like by hanging that that's done with children, especially. So I think that something that was really shocking about that is to see like, you know, violence against children, which is really yeah, hard it's... to watch for a lot of people. Yeah, that's one of those things that is off-putting uh, for a lot of modern moviegoers, and it's kind of like a big no-no in Hollywood films these days. So the fact that they really did this at a big budget theater with a big name actor was uh, kind of a you know it was a you know real good showing for that. They they kind of pushed the boundaries there a bit. And there's James Rinsone, that ass. Oh my god. There he is. Watching him try to act. I don't know what it is about the guy. He just is it's not meshing well with me. You know it's never good whenever you move into a new house and your kids start drawing black figures on paintings. <laughs> yeah, that's always the biggest red flag right there. And Ethan Hawke just really plays this character so well. Honestly, if you look at it, the film is just like saved almost by Ethan Hawke, just by the way his character um, reacts to every single scene. He feels like a real like father figure in this. Like It feels legit. I always like how when people move into new homes in horror films, 
And it's like, this is the first time they've ever been in the house, but yeah, they walk in like they've been through it like a thousand times, moving stuff to a certain house, certain rooms. And yeah, they already know exactly. I think it's hilarious because we know damn well if you move into a brand new house, you're not going to touch those boxes for a couple of weeks. So they just walk in directly and they're like, your room's going to be over here. Here's all your stuff. The kitchen's over here. The living room's here. Here's our bedroom. Let's unpack everybody. And I'm like, do you know right there? It's like kind of psychopathic. The fact that they're just all unpacking. He does a lot of horror films these days too. Ethan Hawke. I feel like he jumped into the horror with this film. Like this was like one of the first ones he'd done. And then from that point on, he just started doing horror films from then. Mm-hmm. He's done a lot of, um, I mean, he's made a lot of great films, especially horror. Now, of course, we do have like Sinister 2, which um, not talking too much about the sequel during this, because obviously this one comes before, so it's hard to talk about that right now. But um, this one is far better, I feel like, than the, the second one. But th just this as a standalone film, it really works for me. And then, of course, Scott Derrickson did go on to do some really, I mean, out, like crazy large projects. Like he works for Marvel now, which is insane. What was his follow-up to this? Um, this was a this was a big hit for him. It was, and it's what it's what really kind of broke him out. Like he did the Exorcism of Emily Rose back in like '05, and he did the Day the Earth Should Still, and that led him into Sinister. And then he obviously did Doctor Strange, and has produced all the Doctor Stranges, and then most recently he did the Black Phone, which was kind of like a return to form because a lot about the Black Phone was a lot different than Sinister. But also a lot about the black phone was very similar. If you think about it, you know what I mean? Yeah. You and, seen uh, that, this, I have not seen that, no. No way. Now this was one of those movies that was this like at the height of like paranormal ghost movies, like 2012? That's just a couple years right after like paranormal activity and all that stuff, right? It was, yeah. There was something about it okay there was a golden age of blumhouse films and if you remember this chris it was from like this was one of the beginning like this is like the very beginning of the renaissance of horror and obviously james bloom you know james bloom had this idea if he was going to give out money to independent filmmakers who had not made a lot of stuff and obviously you know these these films were like budgeted anywhere from like a half a million dollars up to maybe two or three million, which in Hollywood stance is extremely low. And if they did a good job and he was able to acquire these films, he'd put the 10, 15 million dollars it took to market it, and then it would be released everywhere. And really, Sinister was the one that kind of ushered in this big, like, renaissance of like getting horror films like once every two or three weeks in theaters. Because Blumhouse, at one time, it was like 2014 or 2015, they put out like 14 films in one single year. So just to know that this kind of ushered in that whole Jason Blum as a producer and having Blumhouse Productions being so successful, this is what started it all, really. And I think that that was some of the best years of horror. I kind of miss it because they don't make as many films anymore. But um, 
they're like 2012 to 2017. Man, what a time. Now, some of them did suck, obviously, but like we get the A good majority. ones. What? Now, okay, I have a question for this. We see that tree there that was cut down. So mm-hmm. in the opening credits, you saw the kids hanging from the tree, and then the tree limb breaks. Right. So are we led to believe that that tree limb has been broken for the past, like, you know, 40 years or whatever? I don't think it was that long, was it? I mean, it was like all retro, like, tape, so it had to have been, like, a, a long time, because this is modern time, right? Well, so, they did use, like, I think it's like a Super 8 camera they're using to film these home movies um, for Bagul. And something about it makes me wonder if this is... I don't know what year this takes place in. It doesn't really say, does it? But I've, I was always under the impression that it happened and then they were the next tenants. Um, I don't know if it was a couple of years, a couple of months. I don't know if it was a couple of decades. But I was just under the impression that it was like, you know, sometime after. But I do find it hard to believe. Like I understand it was like, oh, this house is haunted now. You know, there was a crazy thing happened here. We're not going to take care of it because it's so. When we, you know, we feel so spooked and we feel presence here. But it's kind of weird because they have a fresh cut lawn, which somehow they would have had to work around a broken tree. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And like we have a perfectly kept house, so obviously it's it's been getting maintenance at the same time. And you notice, too, in all these type of horror films, uh, anytime a house is haunted, like toward the end of the film, like the ghosts always destroy the, 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 like the house itself. They destroy the floor or the doors. They break stuff. But whenever a family moves into a haunted house, there's no damage done whatsoever. It was like you can't even tell that there was any haunting there. Yeah, they patched that shit up really good. <laughs> you got to get a good <laughs> carpenter in all these films. Yeah, and I mean, I've always, one thing I want to be alarmed about that no one ever talks about is how dark this room is that they're eating, and they're eating dinner right now, <laughs> you guys are watching along, and I'm telling you, there is not one single light on besides the one they're using to eat, and somehow, it's just pointing over the table, it doesn't go anywhere else around the house, it's like they painted the walls like pitch black so no one can see anything behind it. Yeah, like Ethan Hawke right now is thinking, it's a good thing we have this camera guy standing above us here so we can eat. but you know that's also something about whenever you have whenever you have a horror movie that's supposed to be appealing to the general public like the masses they do have a fair amount of like under characterization they have to do and spoon feeding of ideas to the audience so i think that the only reason chris that the tree limb was still there was just in case there was that one audience member that looked up and was like, but is that the same house? You know what I mean? Kind of idea. (laughs) (laughs) They had to be like, yeah, this is actually the same house we're going to show you. Here's the tree limb. That's all I can think of. So you're saying they're catering to dumb people. Exactly. And I'm just here eating my raisinets and having a good time. Well, just to be honest, most people hate raisinets, and I know that people probably listening to this right now is like, "Why the hell would you choose raisinets?" But I like them. (laughs) 
right now his wife's bitching to him because he wanted to move into this house to finish his novel, obviously. And she's mad because it's been 10 years since he wrote his last true crime novel. Yeah, pissed. he hasn't made money in 10 years. Exactly. Someone has to put <laughs> on this damn table. <laughs> Somebody's going to buy more lights for that house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We got to cut Did down on just... electric, honey. I don't know if he just yeah. saw that or not, but like um, he's laying there and he like he's laying awkwardly in this bed, by the way. Uh, I don't know if he's like in the bed or hanging off of it or, or I don't know what, but he like his leg kicked up and it like had made this weird black shadow behind him. And for a second, I was like, oh, the ghosts are already here. <laughs> Bagul's coming for him now. Yeah, that's definitely way, not that's... a comfortable position to be in. Yeah, there it is. There it is. <laughs> like, I saw it too. Oh, there goes. And, and that is a stupid name for a demon, by the way. Bagul. Like, your... It sounds like somebody like was trying to think of the idea of, of a demon name. They sneeze. Like, they're like, throw up, throw up the names for the hush. They're like, what'd you say? You say Bagul? Yeah, okay, that, that'll work. <laughs> Okay, but listen to this. I love, love this soundtrack. And it's absolutely terrifying. And Chris was talking about us working in a movie theater before. That's something that really, I think that the the thing that really got me about this film the most is the fact that whoever did the music, I'm not for sure, really just like killed it with these like booming, like droning sounds of like terror. And during the credits, I remember... I would I used to clean the theaters in between and the credits would always be rolling, of course. And there's like children whispering one, two, three, four. It's like one, two, three, four. Now I remember just hearing that like whisper, it creeped me the hell out every time. Like you know if you're creating uh like the criminal court board trying to link things together, like eventually you're gonna go mad. Happens in every movie. You know, Chris, now we're watching this again, and you know, I'm, I'm a couple years older, I've seen more horror films, obviously, since this has come out. It really plays on a lot of tropes. It does do it in a way that's a little bit more terrifying than most. It does have some originality to it, but so far, you know, we have the writer, we have the haunted house, the family that goes mad. We have a lot of just general horror tropes. And I'm not going to dog on it for that. I think that it's doing a great job so far of telling like a really interesting total story. But at the end of the day, I could see how that could be really off-putting to a, you know, an audience that's, you know, seasoned and seeing films of true crime and stuff. He's really into this watching his family play in their backyard. <laughs> and um no one's going to bring up the fact that that's evidence he's watching and keeping from the police. I'm waiting for the FBI to beat his door down any second. Also, how the hell do you acquire such thing? Faces of death. Part three. Um, <laughs> like that'd have been, uh, been a really short movie. If that film would have just snapped right there and he would have been able to watch any more of the movies. Right. <laughs> But how did he get this if it's evidence? He's like, yeah, dude, I have these these movies in the house. No one's going to recognize that, you know, the family who died here before had a home movie. I'm destroying the, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm watching the evidence and potentially destroying it here. 
the police were literally at my house 30 minutes ago. Yes. My God, I couldn't stand to watch that. Let's watch it again. <laughs> Who made the film? Is what he just wrote on his little ledger pad. Why did he write it over three lines? Like <laughs> He has bad eyesight, Chris. Clearly, he had to put glasses on to watch the movie. <laughs> Where's Stephanie? <laughs> This movie is so dark. I know it's it's honestly it's a little bit it's to the point where you're kind of like scratching your head like can they see? You know he's asking the deep questions here. Who's Stephanie? Why did you film this? If you build it, they will come. <laughs> is that tree like on fire <clears throat> I just want you guys to know that if you're not watching this along with us he literally stops the film of the tree that the family was hung on ask who's Stephanie gets up in the middle of the night and a very windy night at that walks outside and looks at the tree that he's already seen six times walks back inside to the darkest room that I've ever seen in my entire life similar to a cave and is now standing, walking around, looking outside. That's what we're watching right now. Man, this guy is brave because if there's any remote thought of like a ghost or anything at my house, every light's coming on in this thing. Honestly. I'm not just going to walk around in pitch black. We'll see at the same... Oh, there we go, Chris. Here comes the ghost. But at the same time, I mean, the guy literally drug his family there. Knowing this house was haunted. I mean, this hasn't been established in the movie yet, but we both know. That obviously he does know this house is haunted. She's very sleepy. He looks at the wall and he says, you're really getting good. And it's actually just scribble. <laughs> <laughs> like literally it is physically just scribble. No wonder she gets scared. Did you see how dark it was in that room? No, honestly, yeah. I couldn't even see the door closing hardly because the, the room was so dark. And there goes that music again. I just, I do love that music. I love the score. Daddy, are you going to write another really good book? Yes, sweetie, I am. As soon as I finish watching these movies. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this is the second. So this is the second time that we've got the same shot of him sitting in the chair, looking awkwardly while watching the the, the home movies. 
I just don't know why you would subject your family to something like, you know, you could obviously write a true crime novel about this house without having to move into it. I don't know if he's trying to find an emotional connection to it's why he's doing it. I don't think it's necessarily explained like why. Oh, this death is so brutal, dude. I remember this. So the home movie is basically this family out having a great time at a picnic or like next to the lake. And then we see this like car with chains around the windows where you can't get out. And then the family's like tied up and binded by like, you know, the arms and the mouth to where they can't move or, you know, speak. Can't get out, obviously, because the chains. And I'm pretty sure they set that thing on fire. I will say this. It's not the ghost part, but if I was to find footage of that in my house from like previous owners and like the killers were never found, that would be scary. Dude, yeah. I mean, and these home movies, however they shot them, they did such a great job of keeping it so authentic. You really do feel like you're watching an authentic home movie. So it has that yeah, realism. Like, there. like a snuff film. Exactly, yes. yes. And, um, hold on. It's so dark, I can't tell what the hell's happening. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I can't tell what's going on either. That's something about this, and I, I remember recognizing it the first time I watched it, but it's, you know, it's more apparent now. Also, the guy knows the history of the house. He moves in there to write this novel, like we've established, and then he proceeds to say exactly what he wanted, and then calls the police. Oh, I forgot this takes place in Kentucky. I don't right? think it does, does it? That book, well, he just looked up at a book and says Kentucky. Oh, that's his last book, wasn't it? Um, Yeah, so they move around. And I guess he writes the book for, you know, different true crime stories. Yeah, his last so that one was his last one. Yeah, they may have lived in Kentucky. I think they moved. I don't know where the, this is... Um. Pennsylvania. This one takes place in Pennsylvania. But it is a fictional town. So he's basically... Oh, see, so yeah, so these are all different years. So that one said 86. Yeah, so it might not necessarily be the last tenants. It's just happened over the course of so many years. Like, every family that's been in the house pretty much has done it, I'm assuming. Yeah, but at the same time, why the hell would you move into a house after you see dated year by year deaths happening, you know, 79, 80, 81, 82, 83, 84, 86, and you're just watching them year by year, and you've just moved your family into this house, it's the darkest house in the entire universe, and they're now watching these, like, terrible home movies of death of, like, children and family, and you're going to take your kids and move in with the intentions to write a true crime novel about that place it doesn't really make a lot of logical sense to me is it scary as hell yes i'm just waiting for bagul i you know <laughs> i heard <laughs> this is actually really funny because the guy who played bagul um oh sorry it's not bagul it's bagul um the guy who played him <laughs> that's what happens when he scares you you, you just got bagul <laughs> <laughs> 
Hell yeah. But no, the guy who plays him used to do his name's Scott. Um, I don't know his last name, but I remember his first name was Scott, and he's been to multiple conventions, and that dude can party. I'm telling you. Every single time I was at a convention and saw him there, he was at like the after party, completely like plastered. And people were like taking pictures with him. People were going up and like making fun of like, you know, him being Bagul. Okay. So um a kid just jumped out of a box. You could probably hear the screaming guys in the background. Um Wow. It's his son. Yeah, it is his son. But he was in a yeah. box. Was it of the movies, I wonder? Maybe he was in the box of movies. Time for a raisin up. That's something that I don't understand in films that people find scary is when ghosts uh, or monsters like contort themselves or bend backwards or like, you know, break their bones to move certain ways. I don't find that scary at all. And this was one of the movies that did that. Like, like he was just doing that where the kid bends backwards out of the box. I 100% agree with you, Chris. It's really, it's not scary whatsoever. What was that one movie? They had like a contortionist. I'm trying to remember. Um, what was it a James Wan film of some kind? Every ghost movie that comes out. I mean, that is true too. But there's one specifically I'm trying to think of that was they hired like a contortionist. And I'm like, is it ever going to end? Like the fact that people think contortioning your body is, you know, scary. Yeah, it's just one of those tropes that I don't like. Like that and somebody being drugged around a corner or like under a bed or out a doorway. I can't stand that either. I'm sure we'll see that in this movie at some point. Well, now Trevor, the brother, has no recollection of being in that box contorting his body. They still don't have any lights turned on in this house. It's all light from outside with the windows. It's all sunlight. Mm-hmm. You just look at that one door where it's completely pitch black. If you guys hear audio that sounds weird, I think me and Tyler might be about a half a second off from each other. So. Have a nice morning with your murder victims. Would have been a better shot there is if they would have the kids hanging in the background. Yeah. You're by mind. Oh, I remember this pool party one. I jumped so hard at this home movie. That's something too, and I don't know if you were in agreements on this one or not. Um Hold on, You'd have to. I'm, <laughs> I'm literally on like the edge of my seat here because I remember I was scared. This scared the hell out of me in theaters. This part, Deb. I'm like trying is to. This where the, 
This is where Pagul's face comes right up to the screen. I think so. And I, I don't know, bro. This is like, to me, this is just so real looking. I know it's fictional. Why is he looking at the camera for? I'm literally on my edge of my seat right now. I like how <laughs> the guy, the, the, the goal is like underwater. So in order for the mask to stay on his face, he has to hold his, he has to hold the mask with his hand. <laughs> you see that? Yeah. Yeah. And that, but honestly, that mask is scary as hell too. I saw it in person at um, what was it, Scarefest? Um, the dude was there, and he had the mask, and that mask was absolutely perfection. I'm gonna go as far to say as it was better than the Michael Myers mask. I know it sounds no. crazy. Dude, it is. It on. You've got to see, have you seen that mask in person? Because it's so. I don't even know. I don't how to think say so. It. The mask in person. I've seen like the, so Trick or Treat Studios and that one dude who did the mask for, um, the most recent trilogy of Halloween. <laughs> he had the screen used mask there, and they had the Bagul mask as well. Um, and I had saw them just a couple months apart. And I was like, wow, the, you know, this this Michael Myers mask is fantastic. And then I remember back to when I saw the Bagul mask, and it's terrifying. I mean, the hair, and the hair is naturally, like, straggling, like, wet-looking. And the mask is, like, very aged. But, it like, it has this very, like, demonic, ghostly, like, possessive kind of face to it. And the way it's structured is, like, so evil when you stare at it like it just gives you i don't know i like how this guy learned how to edit super eight millimeter tape together <laughs> and then quickly figure out how to digitize it as well in a matter of moments i like how he paused the video on his laptop and um bagul looks like pinocchio for a minute And you know, a really cool novelty of this is 90% of the movie takes place inside the house. And the house isn't spooky. It's not ghostly. It doesn't look, it looks like any, like, you know, middle class family in a small town's house. It's very, like, relatable. You could see yourself living in it. It's, it, they do it in a way that's very, like, today. I can't I really get think. over how. I can't get over how damn dark it is in this house. And they only they don't have any lights ever turned on. It's always from the sunlight. I know, I know. And I think in the editing process, you can tell they also crush the blocks more. Like if you as you watch this, you can tell they added contrast. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it becomes even darker 
It's very back. Yeah. Like the darks are really dark. And I don't know how to tell you this, but I think this shot here of Ethan Hawk looking outside of that tree was out of focus. This looks out of focus. This scene. Yeah, it's uh it's got a front focus. It doesn't have a rear focus. But even the front, it looks blurry. Maybe I'm blind. But what I was saying earlier, uh, I don't know if you are in agreement with this or not, but when it comes to like scares in movies, too many of these mainstream movies focus specifically on jump scares where something extremely loud happens and that, you know, it startles you, but it's not an actual physical scare. A scare is something that when you see an image on screen, it does not have to have any sound related to it. I mean, sometimes sound can be scary, but. Um, not just like loud sounds, but no. Um, what you're thinking you is see, building like an atmosphere. Yeah, you see something like the image you see, whether it be a scary face, a scary image. Um, you know, somebody says something that's that's scary, or something that stays with you after the movie is over. With that, when you walk out of the theater, you think that if you see that in real life, that it's, it will it would scare you, and that's what a real scary movie should be. And I know most movies nowadays have jump scares and everything but i feel like this one here there's been a few of them already like the the scene with um the water like the where they drug the bodies in the water and you see the ghoul standing in the bottom of the water that was a an actual scary moment it right. wasn't it wasn't anything with jump scares there was nothing loud bangs or anything that frightened you quickly it was it was built legitimately on a scare of what you're seeing on screen Well, yeah, you know, that brings me back to Hitchcockian style suspense. Like, whenever Hitchcock made his films, one of the earliest, you know, multi-film horror director that's so well-known today that a lot of, you know, you can name his films from beginning to end, he trademarked that, like, Hitchcockian suspense, and that's what horror kind of makes me think of, because, you know, instead of saying, hey, instead of, like, putting somebody in a in a room with a bomb and the bomb just going off and the sound scares you and then you're scared for what two three seconds like it makes you jump and then it's over what if you take that same situation show the audience that that bomb is in that room make them wait with a timer counting down and you don't know when it's going to go off and that's what i think about when i think of horror you know build up that tension make people wait for you know the perfect moment and you know the occasional jump scare like for example like every single some of those movies um that get released today that have some jump scares have merit to them um to a certain degree and i'm okay with that but overall i 100 percent agree with you i do think that it's much much more effective whenever you see something that's just truly horrific yeah and so far this movie is built around you know what you're seeing to be scared it's built on imagery and, and atmosphere and it's not built around jump scares or or anything like or loud noises or cats jumping out at you it's legitimate scares i at least that's what i feel no honestly it is yeah i think in this in, in this one there's like maybe one or two jump scares i'm completely fine with that i think they're appropriate where they are i do think there's a lot more to the film besides those two or three jump scares that's in this and um, it works great. It really does. There's not much necessarily that goes wrong with it. There goes that contrast. 
Now, contrast don't work that way. Like, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah, let me add contrast to lighten it up so I can see. No. I wonder who this movie was sponsored by. So we're watching and reviewing what happened in 1998 in the house. I guess he's learning more about the history. And again, Chris, if you look at this, it has so many tropes. This is a trope as well, but it doesn't feel like it. Why do you think that is? I don't know. It it, it has It's such like a generic story, but it feels so original. I think it's because of tropes are only in story itself it's not like i said it's not the jump scares it's not stuff being you know tossed out to people like cats jumping out at you it's the story the the, the way the story is actually written and the way the film's made is the trope in itself it takes the story and just makes a basic horror film out of it but it actually what you're seeing is what's scaring you mm-hmm. i could get that his lights just completely went out, which is absolutely no surprise to us. Man, somebody turned off the moon. <laughs> Guess I got to turn the light switch on now. This is, I think, isn't this your scene, Chris, that you were telling me about earlier with the, um, the kids, I think. Let's see, I think so, yeah. And uh, I want to watch it again real quick before I make my comment on it. I remember this. I remember not liking this scene at all. I, not because it was scary or anything, just because to me it didn't make any sense. Like, first of all, he's walking through this house with the light from his phone, so it's pitch black. And what you'll see here in a second is there's all these ghost kids, if this is a scene, that are running behind him and like, no, there's not. I don't know if this is it or not. Might have to wait for that scene. I will say that I don't know how you feel with this, Chris, but I do feel like a, a tension. Like Scott Derrickson really and his cinematographer, it was appropriate that the scene was this dark because it does build up that suspense. You don't really know where it's going next. Yeah, I do. I do feel that tension in it. And obviously, if you're, if you know, we're doing a commentary over this, so it's not going to be as built up for us as it would be if you're watching this by yourself, you know, in a dark room. Right, right. I don't know if this is a scene or not, but I will I will talk about that scene when it comes. Um, but as you can tell there that they had a loud noise that happened and it frightened the character on screen, but it wasn't loud enough to be like a a, a frightening for the uh, for the viewer. Yeah, like you do get like a little a little jump there from where it was so intense before, but it's nothing that's like super in your face. Like, hey, we're jump scaring you. Yeah, I like that about it.
how is nobody else waking up in this house? He's like going into the attic. <laughs> He's like basically putting the home back under construction again and no one's noticing but him. He's just tearing things apart. He's literally going up to the attic right now. And keep in mind it is pitch black, which is red flag. Red flag number one and two right there. The attic's been like boarded up. And <laughs> he just gets a hammer and a drill and starts going to town. Again, really, I know the scene like adds attention to it, but it's really dark. Yeah, I don't know what the hell's going on. I'm trying to decipher right now. You know what this reminds me of? I did a project for oh, I did a project for science whenever I was in um, middle school, <laughs> and we uh, it was called taking movies to heart. And I would I would like test people's heart rate for like comedy, action, horror to see like how it would react. And I did the horror scene was from the 2004 film The Grudge, and that's what that reminded me of. Whenever he went up there in the attic and he was like taking his phone around, yeah, it always reminded me of that. So something like he either got he got startled by something and he screamed. Ethan Hawke's character screamed, and um, and I don't know if you've ever done this. Have you ever been like frightened by something in your house? You hear something, you go investigate, and you feel like something's there, but you can't see anything. So you like, you scream at it. Be like, well, if there's something there, I'm going to frighten it first before it frightens me. <laughs> Have you ever done that? No, <laughs> I've, I've never done that before. I, I'm guilty as charged. <laughs> Chris is like, well, damn, I did that overnight. Okay. There's a um, snake in the attic. Where's Samuel L. Jackson? About to make the same joke. No way. <laughs> I don't. I don't think anybody can make uh, can see anything or 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 have anything to do with snakes and not make the Samuel L. Jackson joke. So the snakes on the planet, snakes in the attic. Mister Boogie. Dude, I just don't understand why the hell somebody. Okay, all these deaths are in this house. How many deaths would it take for them just to demolish it? You know what I mean? At this point, what? The death toll is already like 15 people, maybe? 15, 20 people? I would say, personally, if there was 15 to 20 people who died in a house, there were videos to accompany it. There were things in the attic. Um, it happened every single time in like crazy-ass ways. Why don't you just bulldoze the house and not let anybody live on that property and just make it a field? Yeah, and uh, the tapes that he found were right in the middle of the floor, easy for him to find. So why didn't the FBI find it when they were like when you know people died in the house? You want to know why? Because they left James Ransone in charge. And there's paramedics inside the house. No one's questioning. You know, there were 20 grisly murders in here. So are you saying that Ralph Johnson's first person in that 
So this guy already is questioning, like, what's wrong with this story? <laughs> but here's the thing, Chris. Why are they even questioning? Wouldn't they already know? If they've pulled multiple dead bodies from this house, why is he asking so many questions about it? He should know very well, you know, hey, a family died in here like every single year for the past 15 years. Weird shit's going down now. Perhaps there's nothing wrong, I guess, now. They just blame it on the squirrels. <laughs> so we get that exterminator. <laughs> Thank you, officers. Anything I can do for you? Yeah, can I have an autograph? <laughs> and by the way, I didn't bring my book. Can you give me a spare book of yours? <laughs> have a picture. Now he wants credit. Can you put me in your book? <laughs> the heck, this guy, I can't tell if this guy is like having trouble getting his lines out or if he's supposed to be like that. Chris, it's James Ransone. I'm telling you, he's the worst in these films. I don't know what it is about the guy. There's something about him. And he, his character plays an absolute pivotal role in Sinister 2. And that's why I really think that I didn't like Sinister 2. He's clearly not writing anything down on that notepad. Yeah. Also, it's funny because again, Ethan Hawke's character is saying explicitly two deaths that has happened in this house, but he's pretending that he knows nothing about them. And James Stone is saying, oh, I'll, I'll do some investigative work, but he should already know. I don't get that. Is she only home during the morning and at night? Yeah, she's gone from 2 to 10. <sighs> Was that really Ethan Hawke? Yeah, that's that not is. even hot. Yeah, it's it's um they just did him up to look a little younger. Like dyed his hair and slicked it back and Yeah, or did something to it. <clears throat> oh. 
And he says right there, he's like, you know, I did it for the fame and money. And I think that that is such like a real thing about this you know, story is the fact that his his character is in it for the love of it. He's not trying to to do anything. He just wants to be recognized. He wants to be famous. He wants to do something that's cutting edge that no one's ever done before. Which is like crazy because it kind of plays into that idea of like greed. He's very greedy. He's willing to put his own family at risk of like death from this creature, knowing that the house is obviously cursed, experiencing these things firsthand. And he, you know, ceaselessly goes into this like madness of desperation, trying to find more information about this to write in his book, just so he can get the clout saying that he was the one that was able to write about it. So you see how we were, we were watching him watch an old interview of him on TV and then we're sitting here watching him go and like surf the internet, trying to find those videotapes again and everything. They could have had it to where, as he's doing this, the Kentucky Blood interview is on the TV in the background. That way we can hear that while we watch this. Like it would have been a little bit smoother, I think. I'm yeah, just, I mean, it would have moved things along faster. But now this scene here is where it starts getting kind of escalated because. For the first time ever, we're finding out more about Mr. Boogie now. He has the evidence of the from the attic. He has videos, and he's now trying to figure out who this creature is. So this is where it really escalates. Now, do you think that you think that Mr. Boogie was actually in the shots when we initially watched them, or do you think that they added him in? I think they just added him in. Because like, how spooky would it be if he was there the whole time we were watching this? Like, they pull like a Mike Flanagan. You know what I mean? Oh, dude, here it is. Here it is. I'm waiting for. It. I know what the scene is. Oh shit, I'm on the edge of my seat again. Oh no, wait. Sorry. If you if you hear <laughs> if you hear us talking and then all of a sudden we just stop talking, it's because we are actually enjoying the movie. Yeah. Yeah, guys, it's hard to like remember to describe exactly what we're seeing if you're listening in your car or something. Because Yeah, see it's happening to me right now. It's just such like a bizarre and interesting story. It's like when you and Mike were doing your commentary on Halloween 2, I was listening to it and you guys just stopped talking. And then all of a sudden I hear Mike say, oh, sorry, guys. And you're like, yeah, there was boobs on TV. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) What was I saying again? (laughs) Well, no, so now, okay, so now I'm understanding because he has a cell phone. He has a laptop, so it's obviously like 2012. I know we had like kind of a question, like, what year was this? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was a modern time. I mean, it had to be at least because of the phone, but 
and the tapes that he found were all dated different years. So he writes. He always writes like triple lines. <clears throat> I just want to spoil it, Chris. I know that image of a ghoul moves and looks at him at some point, and I'm just waiting for it to happen. Yeah, I was thinking that too. And I was there like, we I'm go. Ask, yeah. And I don't know whether it would have been better if he would have saw it happen or not and then think he's crazy. Well, no, he did see it. Remember, um, he kind of like peered over his shoulder because he felt something moving there. What would have been even spookier is like if something like kind of like took his hand and like made him reopen his laptop again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, you're watching this. I just want to say they're. I can't sleep. <laughs> That's what I was say. Like their nighttime shots are progressively getting darker as the movie goes on. Their daytime shots are getting progressively darker. Yeah, I'm pretty sure at nighttime they decide to paint their walls completely pitch black to add like even more darkness. This may be the scene. So, Ethan Hawke gets up in the middle of the night, he hears something, um, wakes up, and the film is rolling by itself in his office. He didn't start it. Yeah, and I really want you to get that stuck in your head, too, with that imagery of those kids hanging. Yeah, you multiple times my question to you chris is at what point would you decide to move out and i think that this would be it if i woke up and i saw this that would be the moment i say hey we have one hour and we're leaving (laughs) Would you be leaving yet? I would have already put a bid up for sale. <laughs> I feel that. You just saw the goal. Yeah, that was a good that was a good scare right there. Which I think you kind of see it coming too because he walks over to the window and then holds a picture up to the window. But there was no need for him to do that, so I kind of feel like you would you would see that. But again, it's like tricks, it's like camera tricks, horror tricks, all that kind of stuff. It's like, you know, fun like gags like that. You know, like as, as easy as holding up a picture to a window and lowering it and seeing that exact image. Something about that's very like spooky, but also very like creative. Something happens here, and I can't remember what it was. 
Yeah, I just want you guys to know as well that um, Ethan Hawke has a baseball bat, and he's about ready to, I guess, fist fight the ghoul. Oh, okay, yeah, so it's his son. So his son that was in the box at the beginning of the movie is now hiding in the woods at night and then goes back into that same shock thing that he did earlier. But he's also in the same spot that Ethan Hawke saw the ghoul. Which is interesting. There's a dog snarling now. Again, in the same spot that Bigel was. Why does everybody say good dog whenever there's a dog getting to attack them? <laughs> yeah, there's a dog attack. Good dog. Well, that's a good that's a good image right there. Oh yeah. So in case you're watching this with us uh, or just listening to us, as the dog is, you know, growling at Ethan Hawk's character, the camera cuts and you see a group of kids, the ones that were hanging from the tree, apparently, is all standing behind him. With the light shining behind from him, it's really cool looking. And those are those moments that I I can understand why this was ranked the scariest film of all time, because like these images, they are truly frightening. And just like we're talking about, they're not necessarily jump scares. They could make you jump scare if like you're really sensitive to it, but just generally, it's it's just scary to look at. I remember not liking the, the the wife in this movie. You know, this is honestly Ethan Hawke's story. Um, I just don't think that any of the other characters have enough of a role to even matter. Because you really just spend every moment with Ethan Hawke. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like his character. And from the very beginning to the very end, it's pretty much only pertaining to something that has to do with him. Even his wife is kind of just an extension of him throughout the story. It's just driving himself deeper and deeper. And yeah, because you know, we, ne we never see her without him. Exactly, yeah. So it's really, I mean, it's not necessarily, she's not even, she's very much the supporting character in this. Along with everybody else. It's really just about, you know, I can't compare it to this. And this is not fair to compare it to, but it's almost like the shining, if you think about it, because you have the story of Jack at the hotel taking care of it, trying to write like a novel. And then in this movie, it's solely just Jack Nick, not Jack Nicholson, but it's solely just um, Ethan Hawke trying to write a true crime story in this house. So it's very much like, hey, this story is driven by him fully in that comparison. So he was just standing at the door with the sh like he's talking to the sheriff. And that's like at least a 15 to 20 second shot. And you cannot see any of it. 
It's just an outline of a person. You cannot see who it was. That's so crazy how dark this movie is. And that's something I always remember. Like, if somebody brings up Sinister, I always remember Bagul, obviously. I remember Ethan Hawke's, you know, great acting throughout. And then I remember how it's so dark that you don't know what's going on half the time. Where's Stephanie, Chris? Where's Stephanie? Well, they just showed a picture of her. He's right there. (laughs) You're right. I don't like him as a sheriff. Yeah. They had every right to not make his character like leading. So for if if you've seen Sinister 2, right, Chris? Yes. So they make his character even bigger and he honestly becomes like the Ethan Hawke in Sinister 2. They had every opportunity to write his character out or write his character down and instead they give him a bigger role. And I don't understand because even in Sinister, he's not great. Now, I do like the idea of like, hey, you know, we're going to follow the sheriff in this little more close. That's interesting because I love like police procedurals and like, you know, true crimey kind of like, hey, we're following the sheriff. But the thing is, is just James Rans- James Ransone's just not very good. Which um movie do you think is the most brutal so far? I think the the video of the people being pulled into the water is the worst one. Same. Because to me, it was the most realistic one. And then also to imagine like, I, I know that like being caught on fire and stuff and not, would be awful, but I just, I can't imagine like drowning either, so. Oh, yeah, I'm right there with you. I think, well, I mean, I think being caught on fire would even be worse than drowning, but something about the way they shot the drowning scene, there's something really spooky about being taped, like duct taped down to a, um, like a lounger and being pulled by a rope into a pool and drowning to death. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is like while you're drowning, it's like you're all the other family members are there doing the same thing. So you're like, you, can't help them yeah like you have to also see your kids be killed before you because they were pulling them in first oh bro no this one was the one that had the the lawnmower scene yes this is the one that had the jump scare okay i was getting the i was getting the two movies confused Yeah. Now, just watching that scene here, it didn't make me, it made, it kind of made me like perk up a little bit. 
but in the theater something about that like theater sound really they just amplified that and seeing that lawnmower run over that person it just is insane which is not the only movie where a lawnmower runs over a person hint hint chris <laughs> am i lawnmower man well no lawnmower dead, man and then there's dead alive yes um was there a sleepaway camp yeah that they run over with lawnmower um yeah i believe it is sleepaway camp three that's what i was thinking and then um sometimes they come back again lawnmower <laughs> Yes, I completely forgot about that. Yeah, um, there was another one too. This was like in an age before Zoom. And he's already like zooming with the uh with the people online for information about the ghoul. Well yeah, when they were making this movie, (laughs) it was um Skype that was really big. Why was he screaming at the computer screen? Tell me about Sacramento. (laughs) (laughs) Chris is just very passionate about that city. Again, this is another trope, though. Like, you know, he's talking to the the demonologist, the psychic, the guy that, like, knows all the answers about, you know, what this creature is. And he was just told Bagul eats children. And that's where we find out that Chris is absolutely screwed at this point. Because he has a kid. Yeah, if, right now, if my child would pop up from like behind me or something like that, I'd it'd play scare the shit out of me. <laughs> I will say this: there's been plenty of nights where uh, my daughter has slept in her own room and has woke up in the middle of the night and has come to our room, and I just happen to wake up at the exact same time, think I hear something, and going to get up and go check on her, and we meet right at the doorway. And it scared the crap out of both of us. That is kind of spooky. Also, I think whenever you have like a child, it's um, this hyper vigilance of being like aware of things and sounds in the house. And there's something about I've learned. I don't have a I don't have a kid myself, but I always like observe from others that that hyper vigilance kind of comes with like this almost like slight supernatural tendency. So I don't know if like Ellie has ever had any like experiences where she has like claimed to see stuff. Do you ever do you ever get that from her? No, not at all. The only thing that's weird it has nothing to do with kids. It's pets. Where I'll I'll look and see like my cat just standing in the middle of the floor, just looking up at something or staring at something, and that'll like freak me the fuck out. Oh yeah, my pets do that sometimes too. Oh, what a surprise. Ethan Hawke just walks back into the room. and That's a cool shirt he's got on there with those kids hanging there. <laughs> yeah, that's a great print. Honestly, at this point, though, like from this moment on, after finding out all this information, 
he kind of has it coming to him. It's kind of his fault. You know what I mean? I also think it's kind of funny he does have that baseball bat because are you going to, like, hit a demon with the baseball bat? Will that do anything? I think this is a scene. Is this a scene? It's, like, shot slow motion. Bro, I don't even know because every single scene's so dark. It's They're all just going together. Yeah, it's really dark. It's They're all the same. How many times has he got up and explored this house? Yeah. He does have these moments where the house is exactly the same, like, lightness. And he just walks around that baseball bat. There it is. Yeah, so first of all, that was way too long of a setup. Um, okay, so these are all shot in slow motion. And the, the kids are running in slow motion. He's walking through the house. I remember, I remember not liking this scene at all. One specific reason is... They're almost like they're hiding from him, right? Like, there's even a moment to where, like, there's a crack or like a creak in the floor, and he like turns and looks at him, and it's just I don't know, it just doesn't make any sense to me on like why they, why they show up where they show up and why they do what they do. Like, why? What's the point of that? If he can't see him, why is they? Why are they acting this way if he can't see him, and why are they running away when he can't see them? So I'm, I'm thinking this through right now, and like that was another one too. That was a jump scare right there, but he didn't see anything. Like there was no point whatsoever for that to even happen. And then, oh wait, you're a ghost, but you're going to stand there until he turns around. And look, why? Why even be there to begin with? I don't know. It just doesn't make any. This whole sequence just doesn't make any sense to me. It's like well, the kids think... are playing hide and seek. Yeah, well, I think the point of it is to try to show the audience that, hold on. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. I think he can hear them but can't see them. And I think what this is trying to resemble is the fact that it's becoming closer to reality. Like, you're trying to say, like, hey, before these kids in the house, he couldn't really hear at all. It was just kind of like weird things happening. But now he's starting to be able to actually hear them and like you know what i mean i think it's what it's trying to do it is a bit like messy and honestly that sequence could have just been there for one sole reason and that's to you know build up anticipation and like scares for the audience which i'm not mad at like if that was the idea and derrickson was like you know let's let's make this slow motion sequence where he hears but doesn't see look at this with this series so the little so the little girl is in her room awake, scared, and there's a ghost girl that has drawn a picture of a ghoul and the kids and the parents hanging on the tree on her wall. And for some reason she doesn't scream. I don't know. I guess it was because the ghost girl was like, shh, which that wouldn't make me like not, but Teach yeah. their own. <laughs> I mean, Chris, let's be honest. If you woke up and there was a ghost girl in your corner, has drawn a picture of somebody hanging on your tree out back with a picture of this giant, like, demonic creature, and they went, shh, would you? <laughs> you 
I would be uh, screaming louder than they really wanted. All right, it is now daylight, but it looks like it's like an eclipse because it's so dark. What <laughs> what is it? Where's his family at? Did they leave? That's what I mean. That's why I say it's like very much like a a character study on Ethan Hawke's character only because uh, the, you know the kids, uh, the, the mom, they're never really there. I mean, literally, like they just showed his daughter asleep in the bedroom. And then it shows him walk out, walk down the hallway, sit on the couch, and fall asleep until the next morning. And then he gets up, and there's no family there at all. Like, Well, yeah, that. And then also what's baffling to me is the fact that he's pretty much on a first-name basis with the cops in the city. And he's not one time mentioned that he feels legitimately threatened for his life. You know, he's sitting here, like, shooting the shit, drinking a coffee, having a great time, just... Do you think it's weird that, you know, there were these murderers and blah, 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 blah. And not one time is he saying, you know, hey, I wake up in the middle of the night and see ghosts in my house. I have a demon out back. My son's having convulsions. <laughs> Where the hell's my wife? You know what I mean? Like questions like that. <laughs> Even the cop thinks it. The cop's like, hey, you might have seen ghosts in this house. Do you want to tell me something? He's just like, no, nah, I'm good. Yeah, exactly. But again, that kind of plays into the idea of the writer's obsession. He wants that fame. He's greedy. He wants to be successful again. It's been a long time since he's had a good book that come out. And I do love that. I love that about this story. And um, okay, what the hell is James Ramsone doing now? He's like doing this weird laugh to himself. And now the sheriff's like gaslighting him into thinking that it's nothing. <laughs> What does he mean he never would have moved into a crime scene? He deliberately moved into a crime scene to write his book. That's what I'm trying to... I'm, I'm determining that right now because I don't know if he's trying to say, like, hey, you knew the house was haunted, or if he's confused. I think you should just tell me everything you've seen and we'll go from there. Like he knows that the the officer is going to help him like with research and stuff. So why wouldn't he tell him all that? He already knows he has those crime scenes and stuff there. He saw the cork board. Now the, now the cops accusing him of having a drinking problem and basically making the whole thing up.
Now I say he has a drinking problem and stressed. Okay, he he admits now he does know about the murders. It's not like a secret or anything that those murders happened. So I'm kind of keeping a subconscious track in my mind if this movie ever leaves the house because if I'm not mistaken, it does stay in the house the entire time. Like, I don't think that it ever leaves. No, I'm pretty sure it's the entire house or the entire movie. Which I do love that they're able to to do that. I think they're kind of alluding to him, like the sheriff or whatever, kind of being in on it. So now the mom's calling out the daughter for, I guess, well, let's see what she painted. So I think that I know what it is. I think it's the, the hanging picture. Okay, so now the little girl's confessing that she is seeing ghost. But they don't have a problem with the with the Mr. Boogie thing with the kids hanging that she painted in her room. Have they not gone in there? Yeah, exactly. It's just like they saw it in passing. They were like, ah. Looks like a pretty harmless painting, Chris. <laughs> Kids with their imagination, you know. So now his wife is calling him out because obviously they, <laughs> it's pretty obvious they moved into a murder house. <laughs> you asked me if we were living two houses down from a crime scene. I said no. It was a crime scene you were living in. That's funny. We weren't two houses. I'm in one house. I'm like, we're on fire. We are in the crime scene. I think I was also confused when I first watched this too, like while she was British, because like nobody else in the movie is. Yeah, they didn't try with an accent with her. They just went straight for her home accent, which I'm guessing. Let's see. This is um Juliet Rylance, which is from England. Yeah, from London, England. So it is a British accent. Like, I don't think uh, a big scene between him and his wife was really needed after the stuff that we found out so far. It could have just went straight into more of those tapes. But I feel like they wanted you to make him feel like he was going crazy and like just at the like the last point. I mean, I'm fine with this scene here because. Um... The big thing is, is like, we know that we don't really know that Ethan Hawke's character 
knows what he moved into like it's alluded very strongly but this is the moment where the whole family finds out like the wife is just now finding this information out that being said that being said apparently the entire community knows about this so They're definitely like the talk of the town here. So even after all this time, it's still, even after the ghosts and stuff that's been haunting him and the weird thing that's happened with the tapes, he still is 100% about the money. Oh, yeah. That's definitely... What um, What really drives his character, and this is what makes his character really interesting, because I think that this is, this is very much like a character piece on a struggling writer, which I love that kind of story. Um, but yeah, he's 100% here. He doesn't give a shit about his wife, his kids... Or upsetting someone, or you know, he's gonna drag those people wherever he wants to go, where he feels inspired, just because he misses that feeling of being, you know, in the spotlight. He misses yeah. that paycheck, that money, being able to, you know, I think that it made him like giddy to know that um, James Raymond Stone's character was like, "Will you sign this book for me?" And notice he was like, oh, I have an extra copy here. Let me sign it. You want to know why? Because he he has that feeling of like hunger for like attention. He loves that, which is great. And, and again, the uh, the wife was just in her daughter's room and did not pay any attention to the hanging kid drawing and covered the entire wall. Again, uh, really dark scenes. Can't hardly see anything. The light is focused specifically on the actors themselves and nothing in the backgrounds. I do wonder how they do that because if you look at their like side table lamp, it's turned on, but it doesn't really have... It doesn't really have it doesn't really go anywhere. Now we're in another home movie. And it's in their house. So where's the boy been at? Where's the where's his son? Yeah, we have not heard from his character in like what two days. Yeah, ever since he had that outside attack where he started convulsing again, you haven't seen him. It's only when he gets near the goal. And by the way, we may be missing a few things with because I can't fully hear the audio while I'm watching this. Um, so if we're missing anything and they said something about where people are that we haven't caught on to, just kind of ignore that. Oh yeah, same here. Whenever we're, we're um doing commentary, um, 
we try our best to keep up with the audio and, and follow the story, but sometimes it does get a little fuzzy at times. Is the projector missing? Why? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> he waves his hand in the space that it's supposed to be. Yeah, like there's an empty space where the projector is, and he waves his hand over top of it to make sure that he's not hallucinating that it's gone. Yeah, and again, I think that was done for the general audience. Like, hey, you know, let, let's let he's in this room for a sole purpose. He, yeah, we have to tell the audience that there's something missing because if we don't say anything, they're not going to notice. Yeah, they're like, why is he in this room where we're standing? All right, now we have this beautiful. I love this shot so much. Um, it's of the stair, uh, like like the ladder that's leading up to the attic, and you see like a flickering of light up there. Obviously, the projector is now missing. So, put two and two together, it's obviously alluding to the fact that it's in the the attic. So, this is going to be really. I will say this. I don't know how. I don't know if you are or not, but attics can be pretty creepy, especially when they're open and you're looking into them, you know, how dark it is yeah. and you just kind of look and you don't know what's up there because you can't see anything. And just that initial, like first that's creepy right there. Oh yeah, dude, this is, um, these scenes right here are the ones where it gets truly terrifying. Like this, like the last, like this is like the last act. Now that is the jump. That is a jump scare. Um, Bagul had just like moved directly into the camera frame, and um, it made Ethan Hawke's character fall to the ground. And that's now if this if this was an Evil Dead movie, his chin would have hit every single step on the way down. Yeah, yeah. We recently just rewatched Evil Dead Two. Um, well, it's, we'll definitely be talking about that on the the next show because I think it's the right time with the new ones coming out. And here's that score again, Chris. Like that, I just this is my favorite. Like part is like hearing that score. So, um, Ethan Hawke's character is- has decided to take his matters into his own hands and just burn the thing down. Yeah, this is his breaking point. This is the the one part that he's decided where he doesn't want to deal with it anymore. But yet he just had that argument with his wife that same night. Like, you know, his wife is um, coming out, and he's finally broke down and said, "We have to leave." And you know that's the thing is is she hasn't experienced anything in this house either. At least they haven't said that, but the kids have. So you would think that she would at least believe something because you know the kid, the son's having a lot of problems. The daughter has seen things. He's acting weird. He's acting weird, and yet she doesn't believe anything is wrong with this movie or with this house. 
And see, that's kind of a problem, too, because every single family member has had their fair share of experiences. I mean, primarily Ethan Hawke's character has had his fair share of experiences in the house, but the mom only heard that this house was, you know, murderous, haunted, all this stuff from the community outside. And it's kind of weird that she wouldn't have experienced anything at all because obviously Ethan Hawke's been making lots of noise. Um, He's obviously a true crime writer. The kids have been doing weird things. So it's a little bizarre. The mom didn't have a, you know, some kind of a supernatural experience. Oh, we were wrong. It does take place outside of the house. Yeah. But the thing is, is it's still very secluded because, I mean, they went directly from the house and tried to run away from it. And the scene is at like nighttime. It is in the same town. It's very much like confined still. So obviously they're um they're getting pulled over for speeding because he's absolutely in a panic right now. And he just told the sheriff that his motive is to leave town and never look back. So I think that it's pretty obvious that things are going south for him. Why does everybody that's in the like the police department want to be associated with this book? Yeah, he was like, I don't want. I want to make sure before you guys leave that you're not going to write bad things about our town in your book. And he just let him off with a warning and basically said, "Drive as fast as you want, just don't exceed like a crazy amount." Until you're somebody else's problem because he didn't want to look bad because he feels like he's going to write bad things about him in the book. Now, the thing that's really weird to me is that they're so concerned about that book, but they obviously know the history of the house. So why is no one questioning the motive? Like, hey, maybe, you know, he's experienced this. Now it's the next day, the moving company's back at the house. They're packing stuff up. Oh, this is the new house. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I do love that. I love whenever films, you know, they break down they escape and they're out of there and it follows them you know what I mean so the symbols that were were in that room 
Um, he just got some scans from that guy that was helping him. And um, he's having a nice little intervention with the dude again. And so now we have kind of like a bit of a explanation to how Bagul kind of works. And I do like that because it mentions that Bagul is in an image, but it's not necessarily just like a still image. He lives within that. He's able to to leave the image, go back in the image, move around, do things. And um, like they just mentioned like abduct people. And that's truly what makes his character so terrifying is to know that he's able to leave any image. He's able to start an image, exit the image, take somebody, bring them back in, and then there goes the image again. So I do dig that. Yeah, and he made copies of all those tapes too on his on his computer hard drive, so it's like the image is still there right and Bagul has the complete power to be able to open those images up and leave the the screen just sent the um sheriff's call directly to voicemail too yeah, and if a sheriff from something that bad happened to you, dude, and he calls you multiple times, oh, you better answer that phone, right? <laughs> so he just went up to the attic of the new house, and he has discovered that there's that box that contains the um, projector. There it is. Honestly, the same. I would have done the same. I would have, I would have absolutely have died. Okay, so he's <laughs> just received extended cut. cuts. <laughs> <laughs> the Snyder cut version. Yeah. In case you were wondering. And so, of course, that desperation, you can kind of see come back to him. And um, he's over there splicing them together. Which is absolutely dumb, to be honest with you. I don't know, would you, Chris? If you were sent an extended cut and you had burned the tapes already and you were at a brand new house and it just randomly appeared and you were like, oh, well, there's this random envelope from this thing that I burned, moved to a new city, and I'm going to rope them up and start stringing them together to watch, would you do that? I would pass them along to somebody else and say, hey, here, check this out. No, yeah, honestly, like, it would make it like that the Possession movie. To where it's just like, oh, you gift it to somebody else. You're like, drag me to hell. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
Okay, so not every murder took place in the same house. So it's just the tapes are of the murders. Yes, so they just kind of happen to appear. Like every time a murder from Bagul happens, it becomes another tape in the box. And if you discover it, then it doesn't matter where you go. Yeah, generally, the t I guess they're ins they're insinuating that the tapes are also discovered at the previous house, and it follows the family to the next one. Which is validation, of course, that, you know, they're screwed, roy you know, royally screwed right now. So he's now watching an extended cut of the tree hanging scene, and it's a kid that I guess is helping the ghoul in this, and that's Stephanie, the girl that was missing the entire time. So, yeah, he just learned that kids are the ones that have cause this where they basically kill the parents yeah so the kids that have killed the parents and that's probably on behalf of the ritual of Bagul yeah so the kids kill the parents and then Bagul takes the kids Ooh, correct correct yeah I can just see Scott Derrickson directing these scenes of like, you know, bend your head down, look sinister, and then put your finger up to your mouth and go, shh. This is like the sixth time that we've seen him watch tapes and then get ill. I know, exactly. The heck? So he's just discovered he's been poisoned by his daughter. Yeah, um, okay. In this coffee. Like it went blurry there for a second. I didn't know what was going on. Um, yeah, and his daughter has went completely psycho and said that um she helped make the movies longer and that they're better this way. For a moment I thought I was getting this confused with the second one where the kids start recording with a super eight tape or with super eight camera. I did enjoy that aspect of the second one, even though the second one probably was like a five out of ten for me, five or six out of ten. So something very creepy. Just I don't know something about like children. <gasps> oh. She's going to make him famous is, again. 
This is one of those rare movies too, if I'm not mistaken, because it's been a while since I've seen it, where it doesn't have a happy ending. Yeah, no, and you know, I think honestly, the way that this was presented, there's really no other choice but to not have a happy ending. Like the way that the story is structured and the the rules, I guess, of the world, there's really no true way to have a happy ending to this. And these kids are yeah. strong though to be able to look full fledged like, you know, adults. It's like Bagul almost like gives them additional like strengths and support. You know what I mean? I could totally see why people would be scared of this as uh, having kids. Oh yeah, like as a parent, like uh, the I, I think it really is a movie. Like if you're a parent and you're watching this and you have like a young kid, I think it definitely adds an additional level of like horror to it where does the goal get the money to buy all of the uh, stock tape to record on <laughs> and what happens like a hundred years from now is there going to be like six boxes worth of tapes people have to watch yeah eventually they're like we need to go digital with these tapes because there's just way too many Okay, now, I remember the scene being very disturbing here. Now, there's a live video feed happening of all the kids that Magul has taken. And then his daughter, which has now killed Ethan Hawke's character. And she is being watched by these kids. And she's about ready to go with them. And I remember the scene because it's like very, very chilling because I know that we we actually see Bagul the most that we've like ever seen him in the movie. And there it is. And Chris, look at the mask. It's just something like that mask is just so polarizing. Yeah, it's uh, definitely a horrible ending. Both parents died. We're about to get jump scared again, I'm pretty sure. And the thing about it is, like, Ethan Hawke's character didn't really even have time to figure anything out because the second he left the house... That's when he like they call him and tell him that hey, all these things happen at different locations, and then by that time, his kids are already basically possessed. Yeah, and I, I do want to say something now. As the credits roll in this movie, um, and we kind of reflect on it, the film is like an hour and fifty minutes, so it has a pretty decent runtime. Like I would consider that for a horror movie, that's you know that's on the longer side. It's not like crazy long, but it's on the longer side for sure. 
And it did feel like there towards the end that they were kind of like rushing it along. Um, I think that in terms of pacing, they could have definitely cut down on some of the moments that Ethan Hawke was like walking around the house aimlessly, like at nighttime sick. I think that, you know, that's important to like see once or twice, definitely twice. So that way, you know, it's like re- repetitive theme of the, 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 you know, the, the narrative, but that last like 30 minutes really just like, it just, James really... Ranzo, there you go. What is it? James Ranzo's name <laughs> popped up on there. I know I saw it. I was cringing, but <laughs> um, <laughs> geez, he's, he's the worst one in the whole entire movie. But what I was trying to say is I think he does have pacing issues. Um, and that's something I didn't really pick up on until this time because I just feel like the death of Ethan Hawke's character was very much rushed. I think the ending was a bit abrupt. And I think that the first half of the movie was a little long. So maybe not making... I think that they could keep their running time the same but just prioritize like scenes better. And it would have went smoother for me. I agree. Now, we made fun of this movie a little bit throughout the film, and I hadn't seen it in a really long time, so I was also trying to watch it and and you know listen and understand a little bit of the plot as well. Uh, but I can understand why people are scared of this movie. It it does have some really good creepy imagery to it. There's some scares that are there without being jump scares. And the fact that it ends tragically. Yep, absolutely. And that is something like, I think that although this film has so many horror tropes and it is a little bit, you know, goofy at times with them, it does have that extra layer of suspense because it's not only violence against children. It's not only like demonic possessions of like, you know, snatching child from your life and like letting them kill their parents, which is absolutely tragic as well. But it has this like imagery that's very graphic. You know what I mean? It's extremely, it goes a little, it, it takes the extra step. Like it, it doesn't, it shows everything. Like a lot of films, whenever it has something like, you know, children doing violent things or violence against children, vice versa, it doesn't necessarily show a full on image of that. But this film, it does. And it has so much, like, so many different times. And we relive it over and over again. So that's something that's really interesting. I remember not really liking the movie when I first saw it. And I think a lot of it has to deal with just that one scene that I watched that I didn't care for with the whole kids running through the hallway and Ethan Hawke not being able to see them, but they're trying to hide anyways. It just didn't make any sense to me. And I think I, over the years I've been just had that in my mind as the reason why I didn't like it. And I I think I was wrong. I think it was actually a really good movie and it's got a lot of scary moments in it that are, that stick with you. And I know that now that I have kids, it's a little bit more creepy thinking about it. (laughs) I thought you would watch this one with like a new lens now that you're you're a dad, and something. I mean, I want to say this is miles better than the second one. It's definitely not a perfect film. Um, could we say it's the scariest movie of all time? I don't know about that, but it. I, could, I wouldn't go that far, no. But see, I could. But the thing is, is I don't. I would agree with you. I don't think it's the scariest film of all time, and I don't know if I could really tell you right now what is. 
Because, I mean, me and you both have watched endless amounts of horror films, and it's really hard to nail down. Because, like, I have, like, a, a portfolio of films that have scared me, so I don't really know which one scare me the most. But this one, definitely, I, I could see why it is on the list as the scariest film of all time in terms of, like, suspense. Um, and it is cheap at times because it does have its fair share of jump scares. Like it, it they're like probably like like the scene with the kids that we were talking about that you didn't like initially. Um, that scene is solely there. I feel like just to be creepy and add some jump scares. But Ghoul, whenever he steps in the frame of the camera two or three times throughout, it's there for the jump scare. So there are a few moments of jump scare. It's not. It doesn't take away from the film too much but overall like it does have tropes but what makes it the scariest film of all time to a lot of people i feel like is the fact that it does have that you know not a happy ending it has suspense it has those jump scares it has violence against children children doing violence it has so much to it it's very graphic so i can see how your heart rate like from a general audience just watching this casually, how their heart rate would have increased to the point where they'd say, oh, this is the scariest movie of all time, according to science. So I can't really disagree with it completely, but for me, I mean... I would like to see how how that rating that they do, that heart rate monitor or whatever, would have held up when the original Blair Witch Project came out back in 99. Oh, yeah. Before anybody knew that it was fake or anything like that, just those people in the audience not knowing what they're watching, not knowing that nothing happens in the movie. Just, I wonder how that would have affected me if that would be considered one of the scariest ones. Honestly, I do. I, I consider the Blair Witch Project to be one of the most terrifying films ever. And it's not based on what you see because for me, I put myself into the character and I put myself out in the woods. And if anything like that was to happen to me, I would I would be terrified. I know. You know what we should do? We we still need to um we should like host a film screening in the woods they shot the Blair Witch Project. We should I've us- always wanted to do that. I've always wanted to go to Burkittsville and have a tent in the middle of the woods and watch the Blair Witch Project. You could probably bring in a lot of profits with that if you like you like set up like an actual screen and have like like a whole party there at night yeah but Play that's it you there all right so that was that was a little weird there um if you guys are listening still we had a bit of a technical issue here where our internet had suddenly gone out on my end and on tyler's end both at the same time it's very strange uh lost internet connection as soon as the movie was done uh, my phone would not reconnect to the internet. Uh, we thought we lost the recording. Um, my TV also stopped working and kicked off watching Sinister. So I was like sitting in a pitch black room trying to figure out my internet, why it wouldn't work. But um, we hope you guys uh, listened uh, or watched the movie with us and you guys enjoyed the movie as well. And we hope that you guys liked our commentary over it as well. I know we made fun of the movie a little bit. We talked about, you know, our thoughts of the film and, and just movies in general. So hopefully you guys got some entertainment out of that. And Chris, it looks like Bagul is now after us. So, <laughs> well, I have a kid, so I hope not. <laughs>
That's hilarious. Yeah, thank you guys so much for watching. I hope we can continue doing more commentaries in the future. This film is easily probably like a 7 out of 10 for me. What would you give it, Chris? I think I'm right there, too. I think I'd give it a 7. Sweet. Well, we're on the same page. Let us know what you think of it in the comments. Subscribe, all that kind of stuff. Like our page. Um, Let us know what you want to see from us as well. We would love that. Um, And we have... A very fun show lined up that might get a little ghostly. Um, so watch out for that. And besides that, I think we're good, right, Chris? Yep, we're good. And we will see you all on the next episode. See you guys. See ya.